Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us for the program. Freedom from fear, freedom from condemnation, freedom from the bondage of trying to be religious when you can't be religious enough. There's much talk in the public arena about freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of expression. But do we really understand what freedom is? In the New Testament of the Bible, the book of Galatians is Paul's letter to the people living in the region of Galatia. In it, Paul warns believers about being distracted by false representations of the gospel and calls believers back to the central theme of the gospel, that being the freedom offered by Jesus when we receive salvation. Does that have anything to do with us today? It certainly does. Stay tuned as Dr. Corbett opens the book of Galatians to explore freedom in Christ. Today I'm going to be kicking off a, a new series that will be supplemented by others on our preaching team and we'll be looking at one of the issues that actually Rika has just touched on and that's freedom. I'm, I'm just going to tell you straight up there is a prophetic reason why we're dealing with this. As we as a culture hurtle into things that culture, I would say, are extremely confused about. And you heard Rika mention that she got involved in what was essentially a New Age cult, albeit uh, with a Japanese name. And this is, when I say confusing, it would be easy to look at culture and, and say that culture wants nothing to do with God. The evidence is exactly the opposite. The evidence is exactly the opposite. In fact, uh, there is quite a strong interest in New Age spirituality where people are recognising now that this material world is not just made of atoms. There's more to life, there's more to this world than what we can see, touch, taste and feel, but understand as well. And so this has caused some people to look in what we might, or not might, we just straight up say it, is all the wrong places where we've got things that have been promoted that are from the enemy, not something that will directly lead people to God. So when we're looking at Galatians, what I want to show you in a moment is that the word free or freedom, freeing, occurs more often in this epistle of Paul's than any other New Testament work. So it's, it's a theme. Because of the fact that we're going to have others also sharing on this is going to help me to uh, be able to hopefully convey to us as a church why this is so important. So let's pray. Father, we come before you. We open your word, which is not just words on a page, but Father is your eternal truth, your truth. And Lord, we need ears to hear what you would say to us. So I pray right now, you would help me to speak as your mouthpiece and give us ears to hear so that Lord, we as a church can be equipped to be able to deal with the issues that we're going to confront as we leave this building, but not leave your presence. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. The, the theme that we're going to draw out, not because we're putting it into Galatians, is because it's there. Freedom in Christ, a constant thing that Paul will say. When people study Scripture, perhaps formally, they're required to read the, the writings of people who've thought deeply about some of these things. And one of the amazing things about Paul's epistle to the Galatians is the significant impact it has had on world history. It's amazing. Six chapters. One of the, one of the smallest, if not, if not one, of, oh, it's one of the smallest epistles that Paul wrote. And yet, there has been tens of thousands of books that have been written about these six chapters. It's amazing. And so I'm saying that to say that it's sometimes easy to read something, these six chapters, which you could do in probably 30 minutes if you took your time, without pondering and pausing and considering what you're reading. Because people like a German monk by the name of Martin Luther when he read these six chapters in a language that he could understand, it not only changed his life, it literally changed the world, literally. It spurred, it spawned a thing called the Reformation. So when he read this, he realised that what he had been taught as a monk, a Catholic priest, was a lie. He'd been taught in order to be right with God, you had to do penance and you had to do all these things in order to maintain your salvation with God. You had to partake of the sacraments and that if you were particularly sinful and for whatever reason, the church decided that you were not worthy to partake in the sacraments, then you would forfeit your salvation. Now this thinking in in the, the church at that point was something that they popes could use over kings of countries. If the Pope said, we excommunicate you, which is cut you off from your salvation with God, we sometimes refer to church discipline as excommunicating people. Don't do that. We're not the Catholic Church. We can't take anyone's salvation away. But what we can do in church discipline is what the Bible says, and that is we urge people to repent. We call people to repent. And until they do, some people need to withdraw from fellowship until they, they do that. And Paul talks about that to the Corinthians. But not excommunicate. But that's what the Catholic Church was doing. And Martin Luther saw in Galatians and then in Romans that that's not what the Bible teaches. We're not made right with God because we do all these things, as we have said many times in this church. Christianity is not spelt D-O. Christianity is spelt D-O-N-E. It's all been done by Christ. The reason this is particularly significant for me as a pastor is that I've been at the, at the deathbeds of people who have been in this church. And in those final moments, they begin to wonder, 
Am I right with God? And their questions go something like this. Have I done enough to be right with God? Can I tell you, if I'm, if I'm at your deathbed, I don't want that to be our conversation. Not because I don't think it's a question that needs to be answered. It's because it's a question that shouldn't be asked when you know Christ as Lord and Saviour. Because you are made right with God, not because of anything you have done, but because of everything Christ has done. And if you get that, not just as a theory, not just as something in a Bible study, multiple choice question options, but something that becomes a conviction of your soul and so that when I hear some people say, I'm just not worthy to be doing this role in the church or whatever, the answer really is, that's true. <laughs> Neither am I. I'm not worthy to be up here teaching God's word. No one is. But Christ is the one who is worthy. And I remember hearing as a young boy the uh, and I was in an Anglican church and I heard this story of a lady who had this nightmare about, as a young girl, she was, she was saying she had this nightmare of whether she'd, she'd done enough, prayed enough, read a Bible enough, given enough, done whatever you have to do in the thinking of some people about what it means to be a Christian. And in her dream, she was standing in a line to go before God to be judged. And Jesus walked up alongside her. And he had one of those sort of big gown garment things. And she, as she used to do with her mother, and this is not, this is not an invitation to any young child to do this, but back in the days when mothers wore dresses, <clears throat> she would go under her mother's dress and hide. And she said in this dream that when Christ stood beside her, she just went under his cloak and just hid. And then God looked not at her, but at his son and said, you're right, you're clean, you're whole, enter. And that's what it's going to be like. Because it's not us being judged, it's whether Christ is judged as guilty or innocent. And of course, he has been, and he was found innocent. So as we read Galatians, we, we, we have to ask, and I hope you get into this habit. You can read because, again, that's a religious duty for you, or you can read to grow, you can read to learn, you can read to have something of God's word grip your soul so that it deeply affects you. And if you do that, you're going to ask these three questions. This is what I suggest you ask whenever you look at Scripture. And we need to do this because if we don't, we're going to read into Scripture rather than get out of Scripture what's already there. And Marcus, we were talking about those two words. When we get out of Scripture, do you remember what that word is? Ex exegesis. Here's a test. When you read into Scripture, it's eisegesis. Ex, out, I, in. We don't want to do Eisegesis. There's the big words. If you want some more big words, just talk to Marcus. Here's the three questions we should ask whenever we read any passage of Scripture, because otherwise we're going to do things 
that will twist the scripture. For example, God made promises to Israel. God made promises to Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham when he was 86 that he and his wife would sire a child. And at 99 years age, he did. And that's his promise, not yours, Aaron. That's not your promise, Jenny. You see, unless we know who God is speaking to, unless we understand who the Bible is written to, we can't fully appreciate what is actually being said. So we ask the next question, why was this written? What's the occasion? What's going on here? And sometimes we have to read it through to go, oh, I see what he's, I see what's going on here. So that's the second question. And then there's a third question. What is it about this biblical book, in this instance, the epistle to the Galatians, that the original readers would have heard and understood? Now, that takes a little bit more work to do. That, that means you may have to consult maybe a, a Bible commentary or something like that. And there's some excellent commentaries done by some brilliant scholars who can help you to do that. Fortunately for you, I've tried to do that in preparation for this. So you can weigh it up and see where we go. All right, so... The first question is, who is this written to? Well, most of Paul's epistles, we get a really big clue because it says, Paul's, the letter of Paul, it says in my Bible, to the Galatians. So now we go, oh, well, there you go. It's written to the Galatians. And here's an ancient map of Galatia. And if you looked at that map without any reference to anything else, you would still go, yeah, but where is it? I mean, you can see there's a, there's a province. And, and this is why this question in this instance isn't so easy to answer. And the reason it isn't so easy to answer, because in the book of Acts, and mostly when we read through the epistles, we can go back to the book of Acts and go, ah, that's when Paul was in Ephesus or Corinth or Galatia or whatever. In this instance, it's not so easy because Galatia is not a city. Ephesus was. Philippi was, Thessalonica was a city, but not Galatia. Galatia was a region, and when Caesar Augustus came to power, he enlarged that region beyond where it was originally and made it what's called a province, like in, in our language we call that a state. So the state of New South Wales or Queensland or whatever has particular borders. And Augustus took what was the region of Galatia and stretched it right out. So if you have a look in your Bible map, Galatia, if I'm to go backwards here, it kind of looks like a strip that goes around that way. And this is where we're going to have a question. Which part of this province is Paul writing to? And... There's a northern Galatia, which is where Galatia originally was, and then it goes down this way. And in the book of Acts, we only have a reference to Paul being down in this southern part. So that includes cities like Lystra and Derby. And in Lystra, if you know your history in the, in the, the book of Acts, when Paul preached in Lystra, many people believed and many people came out of the occult in Lystra. But there were some that really did not like what Paul was saying. And so he was dragged out of the city and stoned to death. Now, anytime you're stoned to death, this is a bad day. And so it says the believers gathered around him and prayed over him 
and he got up alive. Interestingly, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, I know a man who was caught up to the third heaven. And most scholars believe that's what happened to him when he was dead in Lystra. And he heard things, Paul says, that cannot be shared because they were too wonderful, too glorious. So this is what happened in Galatia. And the part of the point there is that somewhere around this time, Paul was really suffering physically anyway. In fact, he may have picked up a disease that affected his eyes. How do we know that? Because when he writes this epistle to the Galatians, he says, when I came to you, I wasn't too well. In fact, my eyes were really a problem to the point where you, your love for us was so great, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. So that's a clue, right? That's how we know he wasn't too well. And this makes Paul's success in Galatia all the more remarkable. Because in a very simplistic way of looking at life, when you are doing the right things, things should go well for you. You should enjoy good health. You should enjoy plenty as far as financially goes. You should enjoy happiness. But when Paul arrived in Lystra and Derby and, and um, Pisidian Antioch, these places in southern Galatia, he wasn't doing too well. He was physically weak. His eyesight was, was shocking. At one point he says, See, I've taken the pen and I've written this last little bit in my own hand. See what large letters I write to you? Why? Because he's doing this back before there were spectacles, right? He's looking, he's, he's writing instead of O, oh, he's going O. Oh. <laughs> and so Paul was not well. And yet they, had to, they listened to what he had to say, which is remarkable, which says something else was going on. And when we read in the book of Acts, this sickly, near-blind man turns up, preaches about Jesus, and the Bible says this in Acts chapter 16 when he went there the second time, that God did many signs and wonders in their midst as Paul preached. It's amazing. I remember reading the autobiography, or the biography rather, of Smith Wigglesworth, who's a controversial character. But here's a, a British plumber who got saved... And similarly to what Rico Coronan said, he got filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is back in the early 1900s. And this gruff English plumber saw that the Bible said, if you have faith, you can move a mountain. And so he figured in his thinking, if I have faith and I pray for someone to be healed, it's not as big as a mountain. Surely God would heal. And lo and behold, often God did. As this guy preached, it's bizarre. There's a famous incident where someone came forward with a stomach cancer or something and he, he slapped them in the stomach or something to heal it. And I'm not sure how that worked out, but, but there was all kinds of legends that built around Smith Wheelsworth. The point is that in the final stages of his ministry, he himself was battling with I think it was either kidney or gallstones. He was in incredible pain. And his son-in-law, who wrote the biography of Smith Wigglesworth, said when he was in his most sickly state preaching that God could heal, 
without anyone knowing what he was going through, he would call people to come forward for prayer to be healed and God would do the miraculous healing despite him not being miraculously healed. Isn't that amazing? And so this is where we have to realise we might go through stuff and it doesn't make us unworthy or unsuccessful in our praying for others who might be going through what we're going through. So can I encourage you, no matter what you're going through, pray for the weird to happen. Pray for the weird. And I say weird in the sense of asking God to do what really would only be God if it happens. Because this is what Paul did, despite his own physical ailments. And according to Acts chapter 16 or so, verse 6, God did many, many signs and wonders. So to answer this first question, I want you to have a look with me. If you've got your Bible or your iPad or your iPhone, on Galatians chapter 1, we see Paul is now, when we ask the second question, why did Paul write this? We're going to get a little, little, little clue in the first five verses, but this is what it says in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Remember I said Galatia was not a city, it was a region. So Paul went through the region and planted these churches with signs and wonders following, great things happening. Okay, so what was going on? Why is Paul writing this? In one sense, I've heard people say, wouldn't it be great if we could just get back to the early church and be just like the early church? Wouldn't that be great to be like the early church? Well, let's consider this early church, shall we? Galatian, the Galatian church. No sooner had Paul left, having planted these churches, shared the gospel with them, than people came in behind him, after him, known as Judaizers. These are people that teach, in order for you Gentiles, you Galatians, and by the way, Galatia is in the region today known as Turkey. And so in order for you people to really become Christians, the first thing you have to do is become a Jew. That's why they're called Judaizers. These are Christians who believe you also have to become a Jew first. And for men, that meant being circumcised. And for all the rest, it meant keeping the holy days, keeping the food laws, the ceremonial laws, and so on. That's what it meant. So Paul calls what these Judaizers were doing another gospel. He calls, he says in our next session, we'll see this, that they were preaching another gospel. And he says it's actually not another gospel because there is actually only one gospel. The gospel that God loves you. The gospel that God sent his only son to die as your substitute who bore your guilt and shame and sin on himself as we heard Tom share over communion this morning. He took all that on himself as our substitute and he was the only one qualified to do it because whoever was going to do it had to be without sin and had to be someone who could take that guilt and that shame and the punishment of sin into a realm where it would be dealt with forever. In other words, eternity. 
And only Jesus was qualified because he was from eternity and he was sinless. And when he died on the cross, he took your sin, your guilt, your shame and atoned for it in eternity so that, here's the good news, it's not just the sin that you've done, it's the sins that you are yet to do that have been atoned for. Which is why you can come to him, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we make ourselves to be a liar. We make God, we call God a liar because he says we are sinners by nature. But unless we come to him and confess our sin and become born again and get a new nature, where we go from the nature of sinner, always wanting to do what we want, to a sinner saved by grace, by what Christ has done for us. And Paul says that's the only gospel. There is no other gospel, really. There's just this. Now these, Paul uses really strong language and he couches this language in very, very spiritual terms. When he says these Judaizers came in and taught this other gospel, he says they were practicing witchcraft. What is witchcraft? Which, at the, the essence of witchcraft is to manipulate for sinister purposes. And so Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, 1, Who has bewitched you with this false teaching? Manipulated you into doctrines of devils and demons and Satan himself. Who's done this to you? I presented to you the gospel. And this is what we're going to see all through these six chapters. Every time Paul causes these people to wake up to what's happened, he then reminds them of the gospel. He reminds them of the gospel. So for Paul, this word freedom that's going to occur all through Galatians, for him, that is one of the themes of the gospel. In, in writing to the Corinthians, who were also heavily involved in the occult and the spiritual realm, he reminded them that when the gospel was preached, they came into a relationship with God. God's very presence was there. And he told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17, now the, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from fear, freedom from condemnation, freedom from the bondage of trying to be religious when you can't be religious enough. Freedom from all kinds of things. So these Judaizers were bringing people into bondage. Bondage of a dead religion. Do this ceremony. Do this ritual. Keep this holy day. Do all, do all, do, 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 do. Suddenly you've got a pile of doo-doo right there because that's what dead religion does. They were bringing people into the fear of the unknown. And that's why... As a young pastor, and I, I was just struck sometimes by some senior Christians who reached those final, final moments, and now they're fearful. I'm thinking, why didn't you deal with this? Why? As a young pastor in my early 30s, I'm saying, well, this is, Christianity is not just an idea. It's not just a theory. It's something that transforms your soul. Still, if you haven't had that exchange, as Rika said, it was that moment when she was delivered from these things and the Spirit of God came into her that she was truly born again 
The fear of the unknown is, have I, when, have I done enough to be right with God? Have I, have I, am, I go, am I really going to heaven? Is this, is this where I'm going? The fear of the unknown. Well, when you know Christ, you know this, that if you walk with Christ in this life, you'll walk with him in the next. You have that assurance from him because he said his final words, the Great Commission, Lo, I am with you always. You can be with Christ right now. Perhaps you're not. There's also false ideas about God, that he was a harsh, vindictive, spiteful God, a God who'd loved to punish more than he loved to embrace in love. That's a false idea about God. So Paul, in this epistle, in his epistle, he commences immediately to the Galatians with a brief summary of the gospel. We read verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3. Grace, the key word of the gospel, grace to you. What comes from true salvation, the true gospel? Peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear the gospel? Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present age according to the will of our God and Father. And then, as all believers should do, when you know the truth, it should lead to worship. To whom, Paul says, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Because when you accept the gospel, you become a follower of Christ. As you get to know Christ, you want to obey him. When you want to obey him, you get to love him and you worship him. And you spend the rest of your days loving Christ, loving him. And that's my pastoral prayer for all of you, that you will love Christ. So what do we learn from this? Because what we see in Paul's epistles is he does this in all of his epistles. He gives biblical theology. In other words, he grounds what he's saying in the Bible. In fact, he will ground what he writes to the Galatians out of many Old Testament books. And I've heard some Christians say, oh, well, the Old Testament's not relevant for us as Christians. I'm going, who told you that? Who told you that? I've said to you before, when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Presumably, they meant in the Old Testament. But Jesus just went to the greatest commandment, old and new. He said the whole law can be summed up with these two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength and soul. Deuteronomy 6. And your neighbour as yourself. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. Jesus thought the Old Testament was, was relevant. And in Galatians, he refers to the prophet Hosea. He refers to the book of Genesis. He quotes out of these other Old Testament books. He thought the Old Testament was relevant. Please don't misunderstand me because these Judaizers were saying you had to keep the food laws, the ritual laws, the ceremonies, the holy days. Paul's saying you don't have to do any of that. When I say it's relevant, when Paul shows it's relevant. He's not saying come back under the bondage to the law that could never save you. He's not saying that at all. But this is what he does. He gives biblical theology. Theology is the word that means 
How does God think about something? Biblical theology about how to be right with God. And then in all of his epistles, he has a therefore section. And the therefore section is what you now should do. So here's the first thing. When we read through Galatians, we should see that just simply being religious is not the same as being approved and accepted by God. How do we know that? Because Paul was a zealous Jew, zealous to keep the law, who went about killing Christians as he persecuted them. And he says he was not right with God. And when Jesus speaks to the religious leaders of Israel, we read in the Gospel of John, he says to them, you are just like your father, the devil. Flip. So don't tell me God just wants, God's only interested in you being religious. He is not interested in you being religious. He's interested in you having a relationship with him that begins with you confessing to him that you need to be forgiven and asking him to forgive you. And then from that point on, going on that journey from following to obedience, to worship, to love, to love him and keep the two greatest commandments as your two greatest commandments. And so... First thing we see, it's not a matter of being religious. Clearly, that's what Paul wants us to know. Secondly, that if we truly love someone, and he truly loved the Galatians, and if it didn't matter what you believe, he would never have written to them. If he didn't love them, he would never have written to them. But he did. He cared so much about them. He did not want them to be enticed by a false teaching, which he calls witchcraft. And he wanted to correct them with the truth. The truth. The truth of the gospel. The truth that Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation. Had a discussion even in this past week with someone who said, but how do you know? Someone who's not a Christian said, how do you know that Christianity is the only way. I said, because God usually does what's best. I said, yeah, that makes sense. If he's provided the best way to be saved and made right with him, how many ways does that mean? If you've got the best, you've got one. Thirdly, we should ground our faith, that is our trust in God, in what he has promised Because what he's written to the Galatians is not just a gospel for them, it's a gospel for us. And that's the truth. I want to read to you something that this is for those who are aware, NADOC week, and as we prepare to sing this song, this happened in Western Australia about 30, 40 years ago. The white missionaries had left this area and there were Aboriginal leaders there who began to seek God. Something strange and weird began to happen at Willana in Western Australia, far north Western Australia. The crime rate had dropped to zero. As the move of God began to bring people to Christ, the local publican had to offer free beer in order to entice people back into his pub. In August 1981, a revival came to Warburton in Western Australia and 
some white missionaries sought the ministry of Aboriginal Christians who were greatly blessed to go and tend to it. Arthur Malcolm, a church army evangelist from, uh, and from 1985, the first Anglican Aboriginal bishop, described the coming revival to Warburton and Mikathara as, this is what he wrote, this is what this Aboriginal leader by the name of Arthur Malcolm wrote, God called the Christians and so-called Christians together in one place called Cement Creek. There God called them to true repentance in heart and soul. The number of people there was 120. It's funny that that was the same number as in the book of Acts. We wonder, was God saying something with a sense of humour? Anyway, God began to work doing wonders and miracles and then in this parched land where it hadn't rained for so long, rain poured down to fill Cement Creek with water and the whole 120 were baptised. It didn't rain anywhere else, he says, just where God began his work among the people, an arrow in the sky told them to go and preach in the town at Warburton. 3,000 people came to the Lord and then 5,000 as they went on towards Mekathara. So this is a repeat of what happened in the book of Acts. This is the work of the underprivileged and powerless people and the Holy Spirit. It was not a convention or a missionary way with people being ordered from here to there. You see, God used people with an open heart, people who were broken down but open to God, not people who were conformed to some other ways. This is the true story. He goes on and says that the revival continued and that such things as petrol sniffing, suicide and domestic violence and alcohol abuse stopped as the people gave themselves over to the Holy Spirit. People began to receive visions. People began to have dreams. People began to experience God who had never experienced God. He says, Dinjinyini's vision gave him the clear cultural message that Christianity comes not to destroy but to fulfill the aspirations of Aboriginal traditional law. The revival is thus a dramatic step by the Aboriginal people towards self-identity. Once during the two centuries of subjugation, they were no people, but now they are a people, God's people. The revival is the power by which Aboriginal people are moving away from subjugation towards autonomy and a genuinely independent Aboriginal church. For a start, the revival itself was completely led by Aboriginal people. It was when white missionaries were away or had just left an Aboriginal community that the revival came. He goes on to talk about how people were having dreams and visions and seeing things and great healings were happened because these broken, underprivileged people were seeking God with an open heart. That's the power of the gospel that the Apostle Paul is reminding the Galatians about. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. For tonight's program, select Galatians Part 1 from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, freedom is the central theme of the gospel and there were some and still are those who 
want to focus on being religious and completing tasks and rituals to earn acceptance by God. It's not the gospel Jesus preached and not the one he died for. More from Dr. Corbett next week as we continue in Galatians. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to having you join us again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters. Thank you.